the Bandroom Podcast is proudly supported by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Kaleidoscope Adventures is a full-service student trip planner with more than 26 years of inspiring student travel. Dylan and I have had positive experiences on school music trips, so we both know how much these meaningful opportunities contribute to students' musical development and create lasting memories. Kaleidoscope Adventures specializes in organizing unique trips to over 40 student-friendly destinations. If you're planning a student trip, you can count on the Kaleidoscope Adventures professionals to collaborate with you to organize the perfect education or performance tour. When you're ready to plan your next adventure, visit KaleidoscopeAdventures.com. That's KaleidoscopeAdventures.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. And here we are for a very special episode. Very special because Kate flew solo today. I did. And I, and I was not there. <laughs> but we'll talk about that more in a second. First of all, as usual, Kate, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I had acupuncture today. and um, <laughs> What? That is a really good thing. It's something I used to do a lot. And uh, then since the pandemic and moving and everything, it's been several years. But I found a place Mm -hmm. to go. And I've been a couple times since discovering it. And uh, maybe if you name them, you'll get like a, we can, they can become a sponsor and get free acupuncture. Probably not. But (laughs) yeah, we're not that big here, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's just a different field of, you know, it's nothing to do with music. But I do recommend it for anyone out there that's looking for alternative holistic healing. But anyway, uh, so so that was that was my day. Um, in addition to the fantastic conversation that I had with our podcast mm-hmm. guest today, um, but I was sad to to do it on my own. And I wonder if maybe you want to tell our listeners why... Why? Um, why I did this one on my own? <laughs> I was happy to do it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, just in in an effort, um, as Jason Castler says to me, Dylan, I'm just trying to save you from yourself <laughs> because yeah. I'm really good at like, oh yeah, I can do that. I can mm-hmm. connect that. I'll do that. I'll rehearse that. I'll go do that clinic. Um, in a time in my life where I'm <laughs> trying to be Dr. Maddox by April, yeah. So. Um, uh, so yeah, so everything's kind of ramped up. I'm in writing my dissertation currently, and starting tomorrow, I start uh, my interviews for my um, doctoral project, was which is a podcast series interviewing um, a lot of past guests uh, and some new ones as well about um, leadership. So specifically, uh, my dissertation is um, examining servant leadership characteristics in large ensemble conductors. And then the series that I'll be doing at the leadership interviews really has nothing to do with servant leadership. It's just talking to conductors about how they think about leadership, who's been some past um, influences on them in their development of their philosophy of leadership, and, and just what, you know, what's important to them 
um, as conductors. And it's conductors not only at the post-secondary level, although there's a great majority of that, but there's um, some elementary music educators, there's some high school music educators, uh, and community-based conductors as well. So that fires up tomorrow, and I think I'm allowed to say who it is because... (laughs) They signed a consent form. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it's our one of our good friends, Jody Blackshaw. Yay. So I'll be spending Valentine's Day with Jody Aww, Blackshaw, uh, so sweet. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> so that'll it'll be a, a nice chat. But yeah, so that's that's why I've kind of, at least for this week, step back yeah. um, and let you uh, go solo. But I'm excited about the project. I'm excited that um, you know you're gonna have more stuff to listen to. It's not connected to the band room whatsoever. Um, and it's still even, I'm not, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to put it on our website or not. Um, but we'll, I'll, I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, when, as that comes to uh, fruition, I'll make sure to let all the band room people know where to listen to it. Cause I think there's yeah. going to be some really great and meaningful conversations. Yeah. That's so exciting. I think it's really, really cool that you've found a way to incorporate, um, the podcasting side of what you do into your doctoral mm-hmm. work. Um, I think that's. That's just a really fun way to do it. And I'm personally excited and to hear those conversations. I think, it's, I think it's one of the rare times where someone will actually like listen or or know of your doctoral work. Because most of the times you yeah. write this paper, it goes and lives on a bookshelf and no one ever sees or hears of it. Yeah. So this will be a kind of a thing. And it might and I'm hoping it well, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of hoping it will be an ongoing podcast, not yeah. necessarily like we do with this yeah. uh, every week, but you know, maybe whatever six or eight episodes a year yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, super. Enough cool. about that. And more about <laughs> the conversation that you had with your guest today. Yeah. So today I had the great pleasure of chatting with my friend Chris Baumgartner, who's a wonderful music educator, conductor and community leader. Uh, He's the conductor of the New Horizons Band at the University of Oklahoma, which is a band comprised of musicians aged 18 to like 90 something, um, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, So we talked a lot about that stuff and um, what he does at OU and his experiences with uh, living composers and why he does what he does. It was it was a really really great conversation, and I'm excited for you, Dylan, to hear it. I'm excited for our listeners to hear it as Me well because I think there's there's so much to offer um, to everybody. Um, you know, whether students or new teachers, experienced teachers, composers. There's I think something in it for everybody. Um, so I had mm-hmm. a lot of fun, and Chris and I had the opportunity to work together over the past couple of years in a, a few different ways. Um, he commissioned me to write a piece for the New Horizons Band uh, to celebrate an anniversary. And um, I wrote a piece called A New Horizon <laughs> uh, for that group. Oh. And uh, we presented together at NAFME, did some some work on um, community music and the commissioning process and how oh. all of that works together. So it was really fun to... Um, be able to feature him on the podcast. And even though we know each other, I learned a lot about him and his path and right. and everything throughout this conversation. So yeah, I'm super thankful that he made the time. He's he's a very busy person and he's writing a book right now. So, you know, um, it's cool. just, yeah, awesome that we had the chance to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry I couldn't be there. Um, yeah. Mostly because okay. I've heard so much about him. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I'll be able to 
take the audience seat in this one and, and listen. Yeah. Whilst How editing. Because <laughs> I still have to do that. I can't I can't just not do the podcast. So I'll I'll have an intense listen to the ums and ahs and <laughs> all that fun. Yes. Um, yeah. but before we get to that episode, there's a couple things we gotta tell you about. Specifically, yeah. first of all, I think some favors that we need to ask you. Yeah. So the usual, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me say this, you know, a bunch of times. But um, if you can uh, rate and review the podcast on whichever listening platform you use, that is very, very helpful to us. And if you haven't already, make sure you've subscribed to the Bandroom podcast on social media and podcast platforms and all that jazz. Uh, it really does help us find new audiences, connect with new people, and it lets us know what you like about the work that we're doing. So please take a second to do that. It doesn't take very long and Absolutely. has a great impact. So, yeah. Hey, you want to know a fun fact? Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, first of all, thank you for everyone who goes and does that and listens to the podcast and leaves reviews because... You know, we have statistics and we can see things. And out of like uh-huh. 3 million and some podcasts, we're in the top 2.5%. Did you know that? That's pretty cool. Isn't that crazy? Wait, yeah. out of all the podcasts, like all in the, the world, Yeah, all of the podcasts really? were in the top 2.5, yeah. Is that, how does that statistic come to be? Is that like listeners, downloads? Like how do they uh, evaluate? I believe it's downloads. And I, Cool. I'm sure I'll have some podcast expert um, fix this for me, but I believe a download is like a full listen or okay. at least it's, or at least it's downloaded onto your, like you took the effort to either subscribe to it yeah. or download yeah. it onto your device or like um, save the episode or yeah. listen to the, Not yeah. just someone cool. who's like boop play. So anyway, very cool. Yeah. Anyway, go yeah. do that. Much appreciated. If you do, if you don't do it, we don't appreciate you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We, <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you. Don't let us slip down three percent. You know, gotta maintain. We need to keep that top two point five percent. Get us to two yeah. percent. Hey, get us to one. Yeah. If we yeah. if you get us to one percent, I think we can quit our day jobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which I I don't think either of us want to do. So uh, anyway, there's other ways to support the podcast. And I wasn't there today, but I have a feeling. I have an inkling that there was a great great bonus episode recorded and you can hear that there was (laughs) if you become a patron of the bandrew podcast and you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash bandrew pod that's patreon.com slash bandrew pod for more and if that's not enough like like you think you can't do it we just had a new patron join and they didn't Oh no! They yeah, they joined, <laughs> and it was our it was our last guest, Shu Ying Li. She joined, Aww. so like if she can do it, you can too. And you know what sold her on it? For less than a latte's worth of I forget how we sell it. Anyway, it's cheap, so just <laughs> <laughs> just join. Um, I think that was an Alex Shapiro. Yeah, thank you, Alex, uh, framing for that. of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, Alex Shapiro also a patron of the Bandroom Podcast. She's the best. Yeah, there's a lot. You could join a great list of Hall of Famers. Um, but <laughs> rather than me saying, without further ado, I'll, I'm going to throw it over to you, Kate. Wow. What a momentous yeah, occasion. Yeah. Should have let me do the welcome, 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 too. you got to get low enough. And I have a cold, so it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
without further ado, here is our conversation. Here is my conversation <laughs> with Dr. Chris Baumgartner. Okay, so here we are for another very exciting episode of the Band Room Podcast, and today I'm very excited to have a dear friend and collaborator join us in the Band Room. Welcome, Chris Baumgartner, to the Band Room Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, uh, well, I say we, it's just me this time, but uh, we are, are very excited to be able to share your story with our listeners and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so we'll start where we always start with our guests, and that's where, why, and how did your musical journey begin? Oh, boy. Uh, fifth grade band in 1991, I think. Uh, I wanted to play the French horn really bad, and they wouldn't start anybody on French horn, so I, I got <laughs> handed the trombone. Um and then the next year, they were like, oh, you're not too terrible. You want to try French horn? Which I did. And then I realized I was already better at trombone, so I went back. Um, nice. And um, still my first love. I love the horn. Uh, but yeah, I started middle or elementary school band. But I guess even before that, I was the I played Santa Claus in the lead elementary school <laughs> you know, Christmas programs, I think starting in like second grade or something. I don't remember. My mother would know. Um, (laughs) So I I guess I had an itch for it really early on. Um, But yeah, then I banned through middle school and high school, did all the honor bands and brass workshop days and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Did indoor drumline even. And nice. I should be the last person performing on percussion uh, ever <laughs> with my lack of uh, ability <laughs> and um, became drum major my senior year and then just decided that was what I wanted to do um, and never gave it up. So it's been a whole, yeah. what, 32 years playing trombone, That's awesome. which I don't get to do a whole lot anymore, but it's, yeah. it's right there. So. It'll always be there. <laughs> yep, it will. Definitely yeah. not going anywhere. It costs enough. And I do yeah. miss it. I mean, it was my first love. So whenever I get the chance, I try to, you know, sit in and play with our New Horizons band if our students are conducting or play trombone choir once in a while with Irv yeah. Wagner here and, um, you know, summer band with the, all the community members and band directors around town. So it gets dusted yeah. off every few months. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> And was there any sort of spark when you were young? Like what prompted you to, uh, to choose that instrument or just to get into music at all? Was it just this is offered to you at school or was there anything else that kind of contributed to that? I think just offered at school. I know my yeah. dad was in band growing up through middle school. Um, he moved around a lot. So I think he only lasted through middle school. Uh, but it was a big thing. You know, it was kind of a small suburban town and the band was a big deal. So it had a lot of pull. Um, I think aside from horn, I really wanted to play saxophone and I went Mm -hmm. in and I remember I just bit the reed and couldn't get a sound out. So it was like (laughs) woodwind instruments over here. Let's try these. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And you know, 
just like I teach my kids, like, I mean, if a, if a student can make a sound and they're excited about it, that's probably the instrument they want to yeah. and should play. I mean, mm-hmm. it should be what they want to play, number one, because they're going to try hard no matter what. But, you know, I was successful at it, so I felt good about it. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I can make this thing sound not too terrible. Mm-hmm. And so that was the spark. And we started in the summer in fifth grade. So it was a summer program. So you got to go to school in the summer and have band a couple days a week. I think I remember like putting my trombone together outside and just playing as loud as I could, see what it would do. <laughs> So I guess that was my spark. Um, yeah. And I just kind of continued on. It was it was fun. Yeah, that sounds fun. Playing outside is always just better than playing yeah. inside, I think. <laughs> and and I lived out in the country at the time, so there were no homes around. I would just yeah. stand in my garage and play as loud as I could and listen to the echo out the cornfields. And Oh, that's awesome. Um, no one to yeah. tell you to be quiet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then what was it that kind of – drew you to music education because you're you're a teacher in in many different capacities and I know you taught middle school for a while and was there mm-hmm. something that shifted from you know I love playing the trombone to I want to help other people learn to play instruments as well yeah there's definitely a one defining moment um and I guess, you know, I was drum major my senior year. So again, I had done all that stuff through high school and was leading my friends, which was harder than anything. Telling your friends to shut up and behave and do what they were supposed to do was maybe the trickiest thing for a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going to be a chemical engineer. I was a math oh, science wow. kid. I loved uh, one of like two or three people to take the second level of chemistry in our school and just loved math and science. And so I was on that train for a long time. Uh, even went to engineering days at the colleges around us and like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And then that summer before senior, oh, it was the beginning of my senior year. I, and I was a drum major. And my band directors asked me if I would give lessons to a fifth grader mm-hmm. who missed summer band but wanted to join band now that fifth grade had started. So the big, I basically needed to catch her up so she could, you know, join in the rest of the class. Yeah. Uh, Cause those kids had been playing for a couple months. I said, sure, why not? So I went over to one of the elementary schools after school once or twice a week and gave this girl trombone lessons from here's the instrument. Here's how you get it out of the case. And, you know, I'd liked teaching and I've been involved in everything in band. All my friends were in band. I went to all the pet band games. I did all that stuff, all the trips, but something about teaching her how to do something that she had no idea what to do before that and mm-hmm. watching her progress. That was so fast to go from nothing to being able to jump in to class with her friends. Yeah, I was like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And as much as I love math and science and no offense to my engineer colleagues out there. I just thought if I have to sit in a lab and do this for the rest of my life versus hanging out with kids and it being this every day, I'm going to do this. And so it was like real fast direction change had to, Oh, now I'm going to plan to audition for music schools. Oh, what's that? And you know, all this, like my trajectory just kind of went. Um, but I guess I never looked back. It was just like, yep, that's what I want to do. And so, yeah, you know, I always talk to our students, like, or when I interview kids who are coming to school that want to be teachers, like, why, why do you want to teach? Why do you want to work with kids? And more times than not, there's a story kind of like mine where they just had an experience working with kids or 
teaching music or coaching or vacation Bible school, you name it, yeah. just babysitting. Um, and yeah. so that was my turning point and I never looked back. Um, so again, yeah. no, no offense to my math science colleagues. <laughs> They're making a lot more money than I am probably. Uh, and I think I would have <laughs> liked it. I just, yeah. you know, I knew I would love this more. And so yeah. here I am 20 some years later. Yeah, that's amazing. It kind of reminds me of how you were talking about your instrument choices. Like, you know, this is what I enjoy. And so I'm going to, you know, invest time and energy and care into doing it because I'm having fun doing it. And I think same goes for jobs. So many of us have lots of different skills that would apply to mm -hmm. lots of different career paths. Um, but ultimately, you're probably going to invest more of yourself into something that you find rewarding and enjoyable. Right. And so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell our graduate students the same thing. Like if you're not interested in a research project, like then that's yeah. not your dissertation. Because yeah. if you don't love it, <laughs> you're already going to be stressed out and probably hate it at times. So it yeah. needs to be something you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I agree. I think with careers, it's the same way. And I, I did home maintenance and repair in the summers between college. I poured concrete. I've worked at a library. Uh, I never worked in food service and I respect all those people immensely. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, yeah, we all have all these different skills and it's just like, which yeah. one or ones do you want? I never thought I'd be sitting here doing this and who knows where <laughs> I'll be 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, it might be doing something completely different, but, uh, and that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think you have to be passionate about whatever it is. Yeah. I agree. And now a word from our sponsor. Beginning Band is back at the Interprovincial Music Camp. Can't read music? No problem. No experience is required. All campers ages 9 to 14 are welcome. Learn from amazing faculty who will teach you everything from instrument assembly to first notes and bring you to your first performance. You'll also get to benefit from masterclasses with world-renowned band and orchestra faculty to learn more about your instrument. Don't have an instrument? No worries. Instruments will be available courtesy of Long and McQuaid when you get to your first camp session. Choose from flute, clarinet, alto sax, trumpet, French horn, trombone, euphonium, tuba, and percussion. Located at the beautiful Camp Manitou on Manitou-Wabing Lake, located in the heart of the Muskoka-Perry Sound region of Ontario, Canada, IMC facilities are second to none, with fully equipped cabins, outstanding meals, with a special diet chef on site. You'll have a great time learning about music, but also enjoying a true camp experience with traditional activities such as swimming, water skiing, tubing, sailing, beach volleyball, tetherball, and campfires. Stay connected by following IMC on their socials at imc.ca on Instagram and TikTok and at campimc.ca on Facebook. Register today at campimc.ca to learn a new instrument, be inspired, have fun, and make memories that will last a lifetime. So can you share a little bit more about your professional path and how it eventually led to your current position now? Sure. Um, so went to college after that, you know, pivotal experience in high school. Mm -hmm. Just thought, well, I need to be a band director. And so for four years, I prepped to do that. Uh, and I went out and did it. 
I got a job teaching in Ohio and loved, loved my students and the community. Um, I taught in a place where I had a very wide demographic of students and socioeconomic status and band was huge. Football was huge. Er, so band was <laughs> big and got a lot of support. The kids loved it. The community loved it. Um, and, and I still have my Mr. Baumgartner sign above my desk that my eighth graders made me in shop class Aww. my first year teaching. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of memories that I use as, you know, fuel for stories and teaching things, uh, at this level. So it was my first love. And I really, you know, I just like any other job where I've moved, I miss the kids the most. Yeah. Um, and so social media is great in that aspect that I can still keep up with those kids who are now adults with kids of their own out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing some cool things. So, um, sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but, That's okay. uh, no, I taught, I taught middle school and high school band for four years. I started primarily as the middle school director um, and started a middle school jazz band. Had a great time with that. Um, taught, co-taught everything. So I co-taught at the high school and then two elementary schools every day. Um, then after two years, I took over the high school head position, but still continue to teach everything. Um, marching band, jazz band, concert band, pet band. I taught some eighth grade general music my first couple of years, which I did as it's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do again, what my strengths and passions are. So we did like American music unit and talked about jazz and we played boom whackers. I had them playing instruments in the band room, even though they weren't all band students, like let's just make music and enjoy it. Um, so I, I got to do a lot. I learned a lot teaching those four years. Um, went back to grad school thinking I would end up back in public school and my ideas and life circumstances changed as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I got into grad school on an assistantship teaching the brass techniques class for music ed majors, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go in and be a band grad assistant and do all the bandy stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but they offered me that instead and said, well, you can come here, you can still take lessons. You can do have all these other opportunities conducting and study lessons and everything. Okay, fine. Um, which I did. I took conducting lessons. I took trombone lessons. I played probably more in my master's degree than I did in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. Um, but teaching that class made me realize I really liked teaching future teachers. Yeah. And so I was able to put my minimal experience in the classroom to use in terms of here's how you play this instrument, but also here's how a fifth grader is going to react to it. And so that's a little different when they're this big instead of this big and <laughs> cognitively they're at a different level. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I don't not only get to teach, you know, however many hundred kids I teach every day, but I'm getting to teach their teachers. So it's like exponential yeah. that they're then going to go out and teach all these kids. And not that it was an ego thing. It was just like, that's a different perspective. That's a lot of responsibility. But I really liked that aspect of teacher education. So that put me on a trajectory to continue studying, conducting. I still want to do the band thing. Um, but I also really wanted to do music teacher ed. And so I ended up at Missouri, which was just the perfect fit in both worlds. I got to do all the band things. I was a band GA. 
but I supervised student teachers. I took over the student teaching seminar. I got to help teach the undergraduate music ed classes um, while conducting bands and the new music ensemble. And we'll probably get to that stuff later, but like it, my whole world just opened up and exploded. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I've always been able to keep a hand in the band world as a teacher educator, which for me has been really important to do what it is. I, essentially teaching students to do. So um, finished my PhD there and taught for a year in the band area, but they let me do some music ed stuff because I had, I guess, proven my worth. And then I uh, taught for a year at Middle Tennessee State University doing kind of the same thing before ending up here at OU. And this is now year nine, eight. This is year eight. I think I lost track. Um, and, um, yeah, it really does. Uh, and that was your nine. This is your nine. Crazy. Uh, so I'm, I'm mostly, or my position is all music ed, but with the new horizons band, I still have an ensemble that I get to teach and wave my arms and apply all the things that I'm teaching my kids how to do. So, um, kids now they're, the kids are bigger and not really kids, but yeah, <laughs> I still think they're kids. okay with me calling them that. Yeah, still yeah. kids to me. Yeah. So it's kind of how I've ended up where I'm at. I'm very happy here. Um, work with my spouse in the same department. She does vocal music ed. And so there are six of us in music ed, all specializing in something different. And we get along really well. We have a great uh, philosophy and um, just work ethic and department. And so it's a great place to be and we're very happy. So probably not going anywhere. That's awesome. Sounds like a dream team. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is. And it just kind of all worked out. I mean, it's a lot of stuff in in life is chance. And it was just chance that, you know, this job opened when it did. And there was personally something else for my wife to, you know, work her way into and earn herself. And um, Mm -hmm. now we're here and roots and kids and the community and all that stuff. So yeah, that's amazing. Did the two of you get your jobs at the same time or were you there first and she joined you or the other way around? Uh, that's a long, complicated story. Uh, <laughs> we both had job offers at different places. Okay. And this was the place where we could both do something the best. Okay. So um, we, we, we took this route and gambled here instead of gambling somewhere else. Um, but it worked out that they were able to actually, you know, they needed her services. (laughs) And so it worked out really well. Um, and then she was able to, you know, earn her, her tenure track position in doing choral music ed, which is what she ended up doing from the get go. Um, but you know, higher ed is a slow moving machine. So it took a few years for that to happen. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's right. probably enough of that story that we yeah, need right that's now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> navigating navigating spouse spouses in the same exact profession in in higher ed is hard enough. Yeah. Let alone the same school. Yeah. Add on that the same department. Like yeah. there are a few of us around the country, husband wife teams, if you will, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. teaching in the same place, and we are all extremely grateful that it has worked out because we know that for most it does not. And yeah, so, I was going to say um, there's there's only so many people that can 
that can do that. Like, I think that wouldn't be a suitable situation for everybody. And it's really amazing that you've managed to create a situation for the both of you and for everyone else involved that feels good. I think that's great. Yeah. And I, I, I'll take a tangent here just for fun. Uh, (laughs) You can cut this later (laughs) if you want. Um, But you know, there are a lot of people in our profession in music and music education who are together, married, you know, partners, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And so it's not anything new. And I think it's because we're also passionate about our art and our craft. We hang out together, we do everything together. So naturally you get close. Um, And so, you know, that's how we ended up together. Uh, But that does not itself define our relationship, but it does make it difficult when you, you know, at times when you literally share everything, work, home, I mean, every i mean our google calendars are connected now because we have kids and it has to be mm-hmm. but even so like you know it, it can be a blessing and a curse and so putting parameters on work life balance which she is way better at than i am <laughs> and i would have never even been aware of if it weren't for her um which i'm now much more in tune to and really stress with our students um because you can burn out you know, there are a lot, there's a high divorce rate, I think. I don't have mm-hmm. the empirical evidence to prove it. It's probably out there. Yeah. Uh, but in our profession of people who are together and get divorced, because you, it is a lot of sharing the stress, sharing all those things along with the good stuff. So um, again, it's, it, we're fortunate. We've been able to make it work professionally and personally. Um, and there are times where both become challenging, but yeah. Um, we've been able to make sure it doesn't destroy either one. And yeah. I think that's what has kept it going this long, this well. And for our colleagues too, they don't want to be, you know, I'm sure we're the married couple in the music ed area. So that's already <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry for everybody else. Uh, and we try to be not that, not that at work, you know, and, um, yeah. and, but at the same time we are because our kids are babysitters you know, when they figure out we're married because we have different last names, it's like, <gasps> like their brains explode, some of them as freshmen, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even funnier when it takes them a couple of years to figure it out. So right. <laughs> anyways, uh, for advice for any other, uh, you know, married couples in music education out there, like you just, you have to set boundaries, you have to communicate, you have to be really open about who you're going to be as individuals and professionals mm-hmm and a married couple or a together couple. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that tangent. Thank you for sharing that. I think, (laughs) I think it's an important topic, you know, because it is so common and you're right. Like for any students listening to this, like people are, are pairing up, you know, you meet people at music school that you, you know, have so many shared interests, so many shared experiences. And we all know that these musical experiences kind of fast track the like bonding sort of thing between people you know you go on a band trip you play a festival you um you know get through this really difficult recital or something and everybody that you share that with you get so close with so quickly right and yeah I think it's yeah it's important for us to be talking about these things and finding balance and finding maintaining individuality within a partnership within those kinds of dynamics. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. And even non music, music educators. I mean, how many people are met in marching band in college 
or, you know, all yeah. my girlfriends in high school were probably in band, you know, yeah. like yeah. relationships <laughs> are born and die on the band bus on the totally. way to contest or whatever, you know? So, yeah, yeah. and it's the same in choir and show choir and everything, yeah. you know, in the arts and theater, you know, I, you're right. I think that that emotional connection we have to music and the time intensity we spend with it and together just exponentially magnifies those relationships and fast tracks them. So yeah. I think, yeah. So yeah. band directors, beware of your students, and <laughs> but foster that. Like that's what brings us together, right? So no wonder yeah. there's some connection that draws those kids together. And if that yeah. ends in, you know, lifelong partnerships, great. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and it's, you mentioned too, the, you know, maybe high divorce rate and that kind of thing. Like, I think there's this idea, or at least historically, there's been this idea that you can kind of either be like a family person or mm -hmm. a career person, right? And that you have to be all in one or the other. And I, I'm so glad that now there's a lot more people that are trying, even though it's difficult, to find that balance between, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm passionate about and I'm going to do what's best for the people that I love. Um, finding, you know, navigating that can be really tricky, but it's good to talk about it. Yeah. I'm going to go off script here again, too, because this is something that needs discussed more in our field, yeah. that that idea right there. And it's usually historically in our field and society, you know, it's the it's the the moms and the women that have to give up the career yeah. or change their career to balance those two things. Mm -hmm. And we you know, I work in a very white hetero male dominated profession talk about it yeah. all the time with my students mm -hmm. and um it's important that those of us who are white male hetero whatever are a good models of that family work life balance and stand up for you know our colleagues whoever they are who are balancing those things or who may experience um you know, any kind of discrimination, whether it's, you know, discreet or very forward uh, mm -hmm. for any of those things. So um, I don't say this at all to try to be a savior of anything, but, you know, I, I've done s some research on women band directors because I was graduating so many women who were really good at what they did and yeah. experiencing things in the classroom with colleagues and administrators and parents and whoever um, that I felt like I needed to do something like, yeah. what is there that I can do to better this? I don't want these women, you know, sitting silent or giving up their careers because of it. Um, and so that was really eye opening for me to hear from women about that. And I was at a conference and I heard somebody say, you know, the men need to be doing this research too. Yeah. And that's what kind of gave me the the okay, I guess, personally that I needed to, to investigate that because I didn't want to be the guy coming in and trying to speak for women or yeah. again, you have some kind of savior complex because I don't at all, you know, I, I'm an insider, I'm a band director, so I know what the profession's like, but I yeah. don't identify as a woman. So I don't know the things that they've experienced. And, um, so I'm very open about that and not just with gender identity, but every other identity in, in the classroom for 
pre-service teachers, for graduate students, for people looking to go into this field, um, just to be, everyone needs to be an advocate for and needs to try to model good relate, you know, work-life balance. And, um, you know, I'm a dad. And when the pandemic hit, I had just earned tenure and my wife was still working on it. So guess who took over more of the parenting duties with two kids at home so someone could have more time writing? Yeah, that was me, you know, yeah. and so kids schools canceled. You take one, I'll take the other. And my five year old goes to class with me and sits in the corner yeah. and colors while I'm teaching. And, you know, would that have happened 30, 40 years ago to a male colleague in, mm-hmm. in higher ed? Probably not. But yeah. I, I want to normalize the fact that I'm a human and I have children and sometimes work and life have to do this. And yeah, that's OK. Yeah. Um, I'm just fortunate I'm in a profession that loves children. So at least I hope most people should. <laughs> so so bringing, yeah. a kid, bringing a kid to campus. Yeah. Shouldn't be a big deal. Um, yeah. so anyways, sorry, that's another tangent I could talk about for hours, but yeah, no, thank you for, for addressing that. I, I think you're right that we all need to be having these conversations and not just the people who are disproportionately impacted by these things. It's everybody needs to participate in the conversation. So I appreciate you modeling that to your students and, and among your colleagues and all of that. I remember having, um, well, for our listeners. So I, I wrote a piece called a new horizon, uh, for Chris and the new horizons band, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but I remember having, uh, meetings with you to chat about things and, and your kids would be like throwing snowballs at the window outside or like <laughs> running around in the back, you know, <laughs> and that's just, yes. that's just part of it, yes. right? You, you blend everything mm-hmm. in your life and hopefully the people that, you know, respect you, um, and know you are, are willing to accommodate that. And we are all just yep. people trying to figure it out. So, <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Well, I love the tangents, uh, but let's let's get back to OU, which yes. is um, you. You told me about this that it's OU, but it's the University of Oklahoma. These acronyms yeah. make no sense to me. <laughs> uh, me either. Welcome to higher ed in America. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of those. <laughs> University of, but they put the other the letter state. first. Yeah. Letter yeah. first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, do you have any favorite aspects of teaching at OU? Any any courses that you particularly love teaching or any highlights from your time there, memorable moments with students, that kind of thing? Yeah, I thought about that question. And I thought, well, who am I going to make mad if they're not my favorite thing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but really, it is just the students. I mean, I just love working with the students. I made a joke this morning that I was trying to continue to be the hip one. And I said, if I ever even get there um, with my sophomores <laughs> who were born like after I graduated yeah. high school or college, <laughs> I think now I'm already getting to that point. Mm-hmm. So um, no, I, I, my, my real passion is in, in teacher education, aside from all things band, just cause that's where I grew up um, is student teaching. And I love seeing the transition from the university to the classroom, which it doesn't happen just then. But of course, that's the time you kind of are thrown in all day, every day. And so what are we doing to help that transition into the 
professional world. And I see, I just see so much growth and what we know about teacher development and how they kind of ramp up. It feels like I always tell people, I think I'm going to do a study on this someday. It's there, but you know, we kind of go through these multiple stages. I think we do that over and over. It's just every time we don't come back to square one, we just come back to here and then we do it again. Mm -hmm. And then we do it again. And I love that at student teaching because they just start and it's like, no, you have all these tools. And as soon as they realize that, which happens really fast, they figure that out and they just explode. And I love seeing the growth. And maybe that goes back to um, that fifth grader I taught trombone to, you mm-hmm. know, in this fall of 1998 <laughs> and um, watching her go from beginner to being able to do things. Uh, and so I really love student teaching. I really love that class, the seminar class or where they come back to campus once a week and they can like be students again after being a yeah. teacher for seven days. Uh, it's a nice for them. Um, I just love hearing their stories. They like to talk and share and they get cool ideas from each other. So it's like the, 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 the last step into becoming, you know, becoming the teacher they want to be, which, right. you know, when you get there, I think you're done. So, uh, yeah. we're always learning. But yeah, that's my probably my favorite. And then along those lines, like mentoring graduate students would be the same. Mm-hmm. You know, whether they're master students and want to go back to public school or want to go on and get a job like this or something else, like just working with other career professionals who are really good at what they do, most of them better than I am. It's like, wow, I can learn a lot from you. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just like that connection with students kind of i guess in that transition phase it's kind of weird but i guess that's all we do in education is it's a a transition from one part of life to another so yeah that's a really interesting way to put it um and i'm thinking about you know my teacher education courses when i was learning to be a teacher and those were some of my favorite too actually like from the student perspective having the opportunity to share experiences with each other and have a mentor who can Mm -hmm. hold space for that and encourage us and prompt us to think about, you know, maybe if something didn't go well, like what about it didn't go well and what could you do? And, you know, those conversations were always so rewarding, I think, from the student side. And I can imagine from the educator side as well, just to kind of create a container for all of that discovery to happen and connections and all of that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. And it's so evident in how you're talking that your priority is the people that you're working with, that it's, it's Mm -hmm. making those connections and seeing that growth and setting people up to be the best that they can be, even if it's not how somebody else is, you know, facilitating that growth is clearly very important to you. Yeah, we were just talking about differentiating instruction this, you know, an hour ago in my sophomore yeah. class. Yeah. And um, they were coming up with different ways to do things. And I quoted my good friend, Alice Hamill. I said, it's just good teaching. Like, just come up with different ways. You have to reach every single kid in here, yeah. just like you, all 19 of you are different. Yeah. And that's hard. It's hard to get everyone's individual needs at one time. But I guess that's part of the challenge that I find enjoyable, but also the joy in knowing that I've helped somebody figure that out, you know, share those stories and get ideas and problem solve and figure it out on their own. I don't want to tell them the answer. I want to watch them figure it out so they can be successful at doing that in the future. And so, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's a container for up, watching it happen. I like that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that sets up those students to be that kind of teacher with their students. Like you were saying earlier in this conversation. I just, hope so. Yeah. Like that kind of domino effect of being able to reach even more people in the music mm-hmm. education world by, you know, supporting soon to be teachers so that they can give that support to their students. And it just kind of cycles on from there, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the way that I got to know you was through your involvement with the new horizons band and you had played some of my pieces with the band and then reached out about a commission and we did some zoom calls and it was really great. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the new horizons band, um, what it is and just general thoughts about your philosophy on community music making. Sure. So I inherited it. Uh, actually didn't even know I was inheriting it until after I'd accepted the job. (laughs) I don't know why. If it came up during the interview, I was too, uh, scatterbrained to remember. Um, but my predecessors here had started it and it's a community music organization, um, internationally. And so there are ensembles all over the country in the world focused on adult learners and music. And so I always tell prospective members who want to join, you can either have played an instrument 40 years ago and want to blow the dust off of it, or man, I wish I would have, and I should have, could have, should have, would have, I'm going to do it now. So we're not a typical community band where it's people who have been playing their whole lives. Some of them have, but some of them are brand new to the instrument. And so we offer all kinds of instruction, individual, small group. We have a jazz band. I started a ukulele ensemble, um, thanks to Jill Reese, after a conference a few years ago when we all did it. And I thought, this is cool. New Horizons mm-hmm. would love this. We have a steel pan ensemble, um, and we have a concert band. So there are a couple nights a week that things happen. Uh, concert band is everyone together. So no matter your ability level, and we can simplify parts, we can you know, pull you out and work with you on music. We can sit someone else next to you. You can choose to play certain things or not. So it's kind of very reflective of teaching public school because Mm -hmm. you have a lot of people at different ability levels. And the idea is to come together and make music. And so, you know, that's part of the philosophy of New Horizons is that a lot of the people are there, of course, to make music, but they're also there for the social reasons. Um, Some chapters are or chapters, ensembles are um, designated 55 and older. We are strictly adult. So we have people in their 20s, early 20s, all the way into their early 90s, which I love. Um, We've done side-by-side concerts with seventh graders, which is super cool. We've had three generations on stage at the same time. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's just so neat to see. And I guess that folds into my my philosophy, I guess, or how I view it, it's not just mine, but um, of community music and music education really is that we're training, we're trying to get people to love, understand, and appreciate, make music in one way or another as a human their entire lives. That it's not just something you do until 12th grade and then you, you know, all those years of paying rental fees for band instruments or singing in choir or playing in orchestra is just gone. Um, and so I think because 
music is so ensemble driven in American school, American schools. It seems like that's the only place it's supposed to live. And so if we can get people continuing on in what they know, which most of the time are those ensembles, and we can talk about what music, edu- you know, how music education needs to expand into more than just band, orchestra, choir. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably a conversation for a whole other podcast. But um, <laughs> you know, we 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 have a great tradition, and it's it's very strong. So if we can at least keep those people participating, and it's not just the ones that want to go teach music or do music for a career. That's the goal, because yeah. they keep making music, they keep coming to concerts, they keep supporting their own kids in learning music, whatever it may be. Um, I mean, I sang in the men's chorus in college. Like I said, I was Santa Claus in third grade or whatever it was. And, you know, I've tried my hat at a lot of things and now I have a ukulele over here. Like just do stuff that's making music and enjoyable to you. And so that's kind of my philosophy is to just encourage lifelong music makers, appreciators, um, in society. And that's what my philosophy on K-12, P-12 music education should be too. Yeah. We don't want kids just to participate in school and want them to do it their whole lives. So yeah. Um, did that answer the question? We didn't get yeah. to you and I yet more. No, but- that's okay. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely answers the question. And I think um, here at the Band Room Podcast, we talk a lot about lifelong music appreciation and finding ways to encourage students and musicians of all levels to find ways to continue their connection with music, whether it becomes a career or not, whether you study it at post-secondary mm-hmm. or not. Like just if that spark of music appreciation is there at some point, finding a way to continue to foster that over the course of life in a variety of ways. We've had lots of conversations about things like that. So it's awesome to to hear about what you're doing there. And I just love the idea of multi-generational things mm-hmm. like that. Like I remember when writing the piece for you and the group, just imagining that there are these, um, you know, 80 year old clarinet players that are going to play these melodies that I'm writing. Like that's, that's such a fulfilling aspect of what I do as a composer, like knowing who I'm writing for. And I love it that it's not just, um, you know, a, a grade two band piece, grade three band piece doesn't just have to be for middle school, junior high band, like it can also be for these adults, for anybody at any age uh, that needs music that they can connect with at an appropriate level. So it was such a fulfilling collaboration working with you. And it's, it's great to just hear you talk a little bit more about that side of what you do. So. Well, likewise. And I think that's why you and I hit it off so well professionally, because we we view it similarly. Um, you know, knowing your school teaching experience as a composer and your community band experience and seeing, you know, your eyes light up when these conversations happened, you know, made it even more meaningful for me and for us. Um, you know, and I have graduate students and undergraduates that help me with New Horizons. I mean, it would not, in fact, they do most of the work, um, especially right now. Um, yeah. And, you know, it wouldn't happen without them. But that's part of the multi-generational too, is that we have 19, 20 year olds, 30 some year old graduate students, Yeah, you know, and um, what you said about having music for everybody at ability level. And this is where I talk with our students about literature selection. It just has to be good music. 
Yeah. And composers can, can and will and do write good music for any level. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, part of the reason we got connected on a commission because we played something that you wrote that was within their ability level, but is just fantastic music. I mean, Chasing Sunlight was our, I don't know what word you want to give it, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was the key into our hearts with your yeah. music and they <laughs> loved it. So I'm like, hey, we should do something special. How about this Kate Nishimura? You want to go contact her and see if she wants to write a piece for us? I mean, I feel like we got in while the getting was good, you know, and you still wanted to work with with us uh, before your career really took off. And uh, but I'm, it was just cool to be a part of that. And, you know, the pandemic delayed our premiere, but it also gave us a chance to kind of work together at a different time, too, which yeah. was interesting in itself. So, yeah, um, no, I absolutely loved it. And um, it's. Like I said, it's a challenge to teach all those level, ability levels, age levels, interests, mm-hmm. type of, you know, genres of interest in music, but that is not unlike teaching public school. And so I think it's a great model. School is supposed to model society. I don't, I don't know how you get any more similar than New Horizons and a middle school, high school band program. Like, yeah, it's just exactly the same, just bigger bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about uh, your experience collaborating with living composers, and uh, I'm not just talking about myself here. I will just share for our listeners that we we have collaborated in a couple of different ways, and we we presented together uh, at NAFME, and we obviously did this this New Horizons commission, and the coolest thing happened. So I was on on stage in big quotes for people that are not looking at my hands right now. Um, on on Zoom, on a screen projected behind the musicians on the stage during the world premiere of A New Horizon, because I was not able to be there in person. This was a, you know, mid-pandemic premiere. And Chris still found a way for me to feel involved and more than just involved, but like highlighted and and participating like a a real true part of the experience um and I just thought that was such a special way to do that because I've done lots of like pre-record an intro or you know we zoom into a rehearsal but then the concert usually just happens on its own Mm -hmm. and I thought it was really cool that you were creative and innovative enough to kind of figure out how can we make this as close as possible to the real thing and that was just an experience um, with me, but I know you bring in other living composers to your music education classes, not just with New Horizons, but other ensembles. Like you find a way to include the composer um, as as often as you can and in as many ways as you can. So I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about, about that. Sure. Uh, and that was a great experience for me too. And I wanted to make sure that you got to experience it, even though, yeah, it was like mid pandemic kind of, yeah. but we had stopped, come back and then we, or we stopped and we were going to come back and then like the next strain hit and we didn't come back. Yeah. So then we finally yeah. did. And it was like, oh my gosh, we could do this. Like we got seven weeks. Let's make it happen. Let's make it um, happen. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Like let's get it. It's been a year and a half hiatus. Um, so I was glad we were able to do that and to have you mm-hmm. there live, even though you were thousands of miles away. So it meant a lot to me that you got to 
hear that, talk to the audience like you would have if you were actually here. And I guess that all comes from my first experiences working with living composers, which really just kind of stumbled into in grad school as a master's student because I wanted to do, I said I went back thinking I was going to be a band GA and I wasn't. So I was grasping at any opportunity to get up and wave my arms and try to get better. And um, Bowling Green is a huge hub for mm. new music. And there are a lot of composers there. And so they were always writing things and putting together student groups to have them played. Uh, in fact, they would do a 24-hour concert where they would write something in 24 hours, we'd rehearse it, and then perform it. It was awesome. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I just, my professor was like, hey, you want to conduct a couple of these? Cool. So I really got it. I played in the new music ensemble. Then I was conducting new music by my friends. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, I got to meet some more composers through some of those things. And then when I got to Missouri, I was like, well, you know, I really love this new music thing. Oh, we have a new music ensemble here and I'm a doctoral student. And I became friends with them and I ended up conducting them. I ended up working the summer festival every summer with um, just like as a production person, helping get percussion equipment, think places and organizing things, um, which led to me meeting, you know, all the members of Alarm Will Sound. And, you know, one of my colleagues there who was a professor of mine at the time uh, was in the group. And so then I got to, hey, you're conducting a music ensemble. Why don't you do something on the summer festival? I got to work with Stephen Stuckey. I got to work with Anna Klein. And like, all of a sudden, I found myself working with some awesome living composers who were like mm -hmm. really out there doing the thing. And just like everything else, you realize they're just real people and good people who <laughs> love what they do. And so it, it became really important to me to divert. I just, I don't know. I guess I realized there's this whole other world of music that isn't just the stuff that we've been playing for 50 years that I should have been programming. Um, and so it's a, for me, it's a great way to just stay new, stay fresh, stay connected. It's cool to hear a composer and say, well, I meant to do this. Oh, okay. That's what you want. Well, let's do that. Or, yeah. you know, well, I'm sorry, but you wrote this in the score. So that's what you're going to get. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's nice yeah. to have those conversations. <laughs> like the person is actually there. Mm -hmm. And when we were doing a new horizon, I remember having like, okay, well, this maybe, you know, doesn't work really well for my players or just yeah. even, you know, like, I think this should be doubled somewhere because just the range it's in and whatever, you know, and not to criticize, but like we had those yeah. conversations yeah. and it was cool to have that with a composer because yeah. it, it's not, it makes it more personal and we can have those professional, that professional discourse and create something that is really cool. I mean, you, you created it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to steal your no, thunder. It, it was a collaborative collaboration, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's what I like so much about it. Um, and so I really, you know, not just preach that, but try to infuse that into my coursework with our students here. And uh, Jen Jolly Zoomed with my class a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we talked about just composing for band and what it's yeah. like for her to be a composer. I've asked you to do that before. I've had other composers in, um, Zoomed into rehearsals, into my classes, um, even just email things, um, yeah. you know, relationships, 
Jim Bonney, I wrote him and said, I'm going to friend you on Facebook. Even though we really don't know each other. Cause I want to tag you when we do chaos theory again, cause I'm yeah. going to do it again, you know? And like, yeah. I just think that's important to him as a professional. And again, it just, it gives a personal connection to the music, which you, I don't think you can get without a living composer. Uh, because again, we're in this business of relationships. I want to know the person. And I think that's why a new horizon is so special to me because you and I collaborated on this. Now, when I go do it with an honor band, I show the video of you composing with looping and talk yeah. about you like you're my best friend down the road. And the kids are just like, <laughs> what? I'm like, yeah, she's Mine's a real person. Blown. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. But I think it makes it real for them. And then all of a sudden the stigma of, oh, it's just a piece of music with somebody's name in the corner. It's like, oh, oh no, that's a real person. And this yeah. is their life and art and job and, 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 and it, it just makes, it brings us all together more and makes it more real. So, yeah. sorry, I feel like I'm getting on a rant, but you're not, that's <laughs> I have super a lot of, well said. a lot of people <laughs> who are instrumental in getting me to this point. Cause I never thought this way. Yeah. Never thought about diversity in programming this way. Never thought about just composers in general and, the music that we teach and how important that is that we select quality music by people who are writing for the right reasons and writing to make a connection. So mm -hmm. sorry, I'll be quiet now. No, it's your turn. <laughs> the whole point is, is to interview you. I'm so glad that you're sharing so much and uh, yeah, quality music by quality people, right? That's the, that's the exactly. goal. Um, no, and, and you mentioned that you hadn't really been thinking about this before, and now that you are, mm -hmm. you're able to, to do so much. One of the things that you're able to do is kind of spread that message to your students and encourage them mm -hmm. to think a little bit outside of the, the box of what we typically do. Right. And, and you're working right. so closely with future educators and current educators that are, you know, really able to make a direct impact on the next generation of, of students and future educators. And it just goes and goes and goes. And so the more people in, in positions like yours, where you're, you've kind of experienced that shift of the joy of incorporating music by people who are alive, who you can have a relationship with, that's going to spark that interest in, in other people too. And I just think that's one of the best things that educators can do is just kind of pass on that, that passion and curiosity and um, desire to connect with the people who made the music that, that you're playing. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And the longer I do this, the more I'm, I recognize, but it's still always hard to just like share stories and what I think, Yeah. but the more I can get away from that and create students who will mold students who will think like that on their own and just set it, set it up so that I always tell them, we give you just enough tools to be dangerous. You're here for three and a half <laughs> years. I cannot possibly teach you everything. And even if I did, you wouldn't remember, you wouldn't listen. It's yeah. not meaningful <laughs> to you right now. Like just remember in three years, Oh yeah, we did that for a couple of days and you know where to go. You know, yeah. when it's real for you, um, it'll, you know, where to dig back. Uh, but to create that curiosity and the, but the, the flip side is it can't just happen here with pre-service teachers. It has to, the most, the biggest population of teachers are veteran teachers who yeah. also didn't, you know, 20 years in, I didn't have classes that address these things when I was in school. 
So mm-hmm. how do we get to those if we're going to make systemic change within the profession, whether it's gender equality in the band world, and it's not just the band world, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, composer diversity and, you know, um, finding music that's culturally relevant to students, culture with a big C, it doesn't have to be ethnic, yeah. ethnicity yeah. when we talk culture, it can be pop music, it can be anything, you know, what speaks to kids. And so how do we get people who didn't learn how to reach kids that way when they were in school to start thinking that way? So it has to be professional development of all of our veteran colleagues out there who are great and doing great things. Not that the, you know, maybe some of them aren't doing it wrong. It's, you know, I mean, the idea of intentional programming. I mean, thank you, Jody Blackshaw for starting Colorful Music (laughs) and all of the awesome things that that has has spurred out there and uh she's a gem and i fell into knowing her through my master's thesis because i analyzed whirlwind because she won the mm-hmm. Tekeli competition to contest the first year i'm like oh my god here's an amazing piece for a beginning band this is so cool and i've done that a number of times too and so i'm really veering here but That's okay. you know like we have to get we have to get out to everybody in the field and our profession to open everyone's eyes to start thinking this way because there's a whole many other worlds of music and musicians out there that I think just aren't getting mainstreamed and should be it's great music yeah it's just it's just good music and that's well what we should just pick good music you're right you should and you don't know where a lot (laughs) of it is let me (laughs) let me help you find some more you know, and so yeah, I, yeah, yeah, we again we go around in circles about that with my class, but I think it's where class is. But I think mm-hmm. we all get to that same point of just gotta think about it. Yeah, yeah, think about it and talk about it, and you know, ask those tough questions of people mm-hmm. that may not be at a point where they're thinking about that yet. Like I, I think it's it's slow change, but it's necessary, yes. right? And the the more <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I may cut you off. Keep going. That's okay. Go ahead. There's, Go a, ahead. there's a lag. <laughs> there's a lag. Uh, no, I, I think there's a, yeah, even doing honor bands and programming, Kathy Lakuta posted something this morning on Facebook that yeah. she's seeing all these all state programs. And it's like, mm-hmm. why are we not, are we not making any progress? Are we going backwards? Like, why is it mm-hmm. all the same type of music by the same type of composer? And, you know, I do honor bands and program things that are not, or that are diverse and maybe new. My goal is to pick music kids have never heard of. Yeah. Not because I'm happy about that, but because if I do, then I get them outside the box. Yeah. And I hear, you know, band, I don't like that piece. You know, oh, that's a weird key and whatever. Like, but you can do it. Yeah. And I yeah. will, if I have to teach a little harder, fine. I will earn whatever dollars I'm making. I'm not doing it for the money. I want to yeah. reach the kids. And, and it happened recently. And I was just like, see, you can, next time somebody says you can't play in that key or you can't, you just did it. And it was cool. And it was different. Yeah. And you loved it. And so did I. And so did everybody in the audience. So don't be afraid. And I think that's, well, we have to do this because we're used to. No, there's good. Yeah. Teach your kids how to play in four sharps. I, I know it's not easy. It's like, don't tell your clarinets that going over the break is hard because then they'll just think it's hard. It is hard. But I think kids are so much more capable of things than we give them credit for. Just give them a challenge. They're going to try something new. 
and tell my eight year old all the time, you're going to love this. I don't know. You know, just, just let it happen. I guarantee you're going to find something about it. You like, and that's really hard for people, but we need to keep pushing people to do that. I'm so glad that you said all of that. And uh, Dylan, Dylan's not here to give me the side eye and like, you know, he, he knows how much I love writing in unconventional key signatures Mm -hmm. and time Mm -hmm. signatures. And I mean, I'm not the only composer that's doing that, but I think at, at that level of, you know, like how far can I push a grade two, grade three, what key signatures can I incorporate that they may have not ever seen before? Um, without getting so much pushback that like my kids can't do this or this is not we we haven't learned yeah. this scale yet and yeah I mean I'm gonna cut myself off here because I I have a big rant about this that this is not the place for that but <laughs> uh, you and I certainly agree and uh, people are not gonna learn how to play in those key signatures if they don't have repertoire that forces them to learn how to play in those key signatures like why do you think that B flat is the most comfortable key because all the starter pieces are in B flat, you know? And yes, it's, it's a comfortable key to kind of start out on, but not for every instrument. And it's not the only way to create, you know, the sound that is, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I could go on and on and on about this, but I, I'm personally passionate about creating those opportunities to, to teach new concepts because like, I grew up learning every scale because I had to, like we had technique tests Mm -hmm. and all of that. But to me, it's way more fun to learn how to play four sharps because this cool new piece that you're playing has four sharps, right? Like that's a much more fun way to, to, to do that. To learn it. Yeah. 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 It's contextual and make it, it make, and you're making music. You're not not just playing a scale. Uh, No, it's and it in, yes. So concert B flat is, idiomatic of most of our instruments great that's a good starting point we talk in education about teaching for transfer all the time good if you can make a good sound on that note now let's try this other note that maybe isn't as idiomatic on your instrument but we can make the same kind of sound and once you connect those dots all of a sudden like again mind blown i just did that with something and it was it was like let's play the first chord of this bar good now let's play the downbeat of this bar and we did all four now you hear the progression oh now (laughs) at least make sure we land on that and then you can make mistakes in between it'll get better but now you know where you're going and once they heard the tonality the key didn't really matter yes it mattered but like more people got it right because they knew internally what to expect Mm -hmm. sounds the same it's just in a different key and so that was a really cool aha moment in my teaching recently and then everything else started to fall into place. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so I say, I think we're kids are more um, kids, even college kids are more, yeah. uh, we, they're capable of so much more than sometimes we want to give them credit for because we're just scared of failing, which we shouldn't be like, let them struggle in something, yeah. not everything. They need to be successful at other things, but pick that one piece that stretches them. Yeah. And then next semester, and let, pick and another let one. it be hard, right? Let it be a challenge. Yes. I think so many conductors and educators are guilty of this, you know, playing it safe kind of mentality. Yes. The fear of, especially with things like honor bands where, you know, you've got a really tight schedule, you don't have a lot of time together. So I I can totally empathize with those decisions, wanting to choose things that are going to work right away. Like I I do understand that. Um, But yeah, I mean, let it, 
let it feel difficult for a bit so that you get that triumph of we did it, right? And and right. sometimes maybe it just takes a little bit of faith, like having the the educator, the conductor up at at the front, like believing in the the capacity of the group, mm-hmm. like and letting and like and, you said, letting your <laughs> perfectionism go aside. You know, yeah, is it product or process? And we could get on a whole discussion about adjudicated <laughs> events, which I think have their merit, but also not everything needs to be done to perfection. And mm-hmm. if you're going to push boundaries, you probably aren't going to get to perfection and that's okay. Yeah. And I think full circle here, like working with new horizons band, people who are at all different levels, one night a week, they're, some of them are there more for the social than the, the musical, but yeah. that's like public school too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, do I want it to sound good? Of course. Yeah. Do I want it to do the best that we can? Absolutely. And I'm going to work my butt off until we get there. But if it's not perfect and we learned and got better and they enjoyed it and I enjoyed it and it's presentable for the final product, then that to me is a huge win. And no performance is ever perfect, no matter what the group is. So I think all of these things have to be weighed. I feel like I'm in my sophomore methods class right now (laughs) and choosing literature (laughs) and what, you know, how do you balance that with the needs of your students, both musically and emotionally and socially and everything else. And, you know, you just got to find a healthy balance and then the stuff you can perfect. That's fantastic because nothing feels as good as getting it all right. But if you don't, that's okay. Yeah, totally agree. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation (laughs) and that it exists for other people to listen to. Cause I think these are really important things to think about. Um, when we chatted briefly to set up this conversation, you mentioned to me that you're working on a book and I wonder if you want to just take a minute or so to tell us about it or any other research or projects that you feel like you want to share. Sure. Um, yeah, shameless plug, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, my book is not band specific, uh, but it is music educator specific. Uh, I'm writing a book, uh, working title, which might just stay the way it is, uh, short stories for music student teachers. Nice. And so, um, you know, like I said, my passion is student teaching and that transition. And so those pre-service teachers aren't, I mean, they're learning new things, but that's not the time to like, throw in a whole bunch of new content, you know, especially from the collegiate level. So that's a time to kind of bridge the gap. And I've learned through my own research and just teaching and working with student teachers, they just want to share stories. They want to identify with somebody else. They want to go, oh yeah, that happened to me too. And I can see myself in that. Mm -hmm. So I'm creating little like short stories, each chapter on a different topic to kind of go along the student teaching semester from getting started to dealing with tricky things in the music classroom to getting a job and finding a mentor. Um, so each chapter has a fictional story. Uh, and I'm using uh, Patricia Levy's book called uh, Reinvention, which is a way to write um, research-based fiction. So I'm creating these stories based on my own research, other people's research, my own experience. And they're fictional stories, but some of them are like, real things that have happened with tweaks. So I don't you yeah. know, out anybody or whatever over my yeah. career um, so that student teachers can read those and then go, Oh yeah, I can relate to that. And then I have a little debrief section and some 
self-reflection prompts and some class activities in case they use it in a seminar class. But again, it's there's a lot of stories from my own teaching, from my own job getting, mentoring students, um, band, choral, elementary, orchestra, you know, non-traditional, you name it. Um, because I think it's important that, again, just like we talked about with composers and young musicians or musicians of all ages, they see somebody that they see some representation go, yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. And I see they only really get that when they're with each other. So if I can give them a sense of that to read externally and then bring together with their peers, I think that'll be really helpful. I hope so. Um, that's my deadline is the end of April. I'm working diligently amidst everything else I'm doing, which is why most of my students are doing all of new horizons this year. So I can try to get this thing done, but, um, it's not going to be huge or extravagant, but I hope it's relatable. That's my goal. That's amazing. I'm personally very excited to read this book when it exists. And (laughs) I think it'll be something that, that, you know, new teachers and experienced teachers and everyone in between will be able to enjoy and get something out of. I I hear that that's kind of what your goal is. And I, I'm excited about that. Um, I was going to ask about like an, a date that it would be available, but I know you're still like creating the thing. And I certainly understand the pressure of like, he's going to be ready. And I'm yeah, like, it doesn't even exist right? yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It exists in draft form. Most of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, we're hoping to get it done. So we, it could be used this coming fall in okay. student teaching seminars yeah. with student teachers but Chris Baumgartner's life is dictating that at the moment. So I'm doing my best as I know yeah. you understand with commissions and deadlines. I do. Um, I now feel the pain of a composer in trying to like find the inspiration for some of these stories. I sit down mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I don't, some of them come to me in the shower, in the shower and others. Yeah. I'm like, what am I going to write about? You know? Yeah. And I think yeah. there's, there's a research study we should do together. There's a mm-hmm. parallel between writing words and writing music, perhaps. Yeah, that would be interesting. We should. Uh, That'll be our next collaboration. That yeah, yeah. We'll circle back to this once we've both finished the other yes. things that we need to be doing. Yeah, let's do let's do that first. That goes in my yeah. list of great ideas that I'm not allowed yeah. to think about right now. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's amazing. And and when the book is out and and available to everyone, we'll make sure to share links with our band room podcast community and everything because I'm sure everyone listening will be excited to read it um okay so before we get to our last question of this Mm -hmm. wonderful conversation I'm just going to remind our listeners um, that we will also be going on to record a fun bonus episode uh, for our Patreon community. So if you want to listen to this bonus episode and our whole back catalog of bonus episodes with all of our other guests, you can access that by going to patreon.com slash bandroompod, patreon.com slash bandroompod. But before we do that... Chris, I have one last question for you, and it is, what advice do you have for music educators or musicians in general? And you have already given us so much to think about and so many pieces of advice throughout this whole conversation, but if there's anything that you kind of want to leave us with to think about. I would say love what you do, but I think most of us already do. Uh, 
I'm going to say embrace the appreciation. Hmm. I think it's hard. It's hard for teachers right now. It's always been hard for teachers. Um, I mean, we talk about, I guess I'm thinking from a teacher's perspective, but you could apply this to anybody in music. Yeah. You know, we don't, we do it because it's a calling, but we make it a career and it becomes our life. And I always tell my student teachers, I have in my drawer behind me what I call my feel-good file. I just made that up. Uh, but it's <laughs> thank you notes and cards and pictures that kids have drawn for me from all the way. I know I have them somewhere. I have to go find them. All the way back from like student teaching, things that I've kept. Um, for the tough days to go, oh, yeah, I remember that class. You know, the kids that delivered uh, stuff to my door during the pandemic with a thank you yeah. note. And they were the student teachers, you know, like yeah. that one comes to mind. And so there've been so many that have voiced their appreciation and I always feel guilty. Like I shouldn't feel that happy about it. Like, okay, thanks. I got to move on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what really keeps me going and it's okay. Like that's the whole point, right? That we have this impact on people one way or another, whether you were a great private teacher, whether you were a great school educator, Um, I mean, you've had a huge impact on me as a composer and colleague, like somewhere in this weird profession art world, you've had people who probably have appreciated something you've done and that's okay. And I think we should accept that and go, yeah, I can take credit for that. And, um, again, things that I was never very good at. And I think my colleagues, particularly the one I'm married to for being more aware of my emotional, just my emotions in general and my emotional well-being. And I think that's a big part of that. And so when it gets stressful and it gets hard, that's why we do it. So I don't know. There's my advice for the day. I love it. Thank you. And I will share that uh, I have something that's like your feel-good folder. I have something that is uh, titled, you are not an imposter. And inside is um, like screenshots of messages that students have sent to me after playing my music or um, same as you, like cards, you know, notes that people have sent and um, even commission contracts that meant a lot to me. Like I have all these things mm-hmm. collected so that, like you said, on on hard days or, or days when I kind of feel disconnected from um, that purpose or impact or or motivation or whatever it is I can go back and see okay yeah I'm I'm doing something that that matters in the world and and yeah. other people have noticed that and um there's nothing wrong with with being happy about that recognition and I'm so glad that you mentioned that cuz there's so like so much of the advice out there is to be humble and to just keep you know head down moving forward and there is certainly a place for that, but I think we're shifting towards, you know, a lot of people feel like undeserving of praise or, or like, you know, well, it's just what I do. Like it's nothing special, but it, it really is something special that, that we're all doing together. Um, so I, I love that advice. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule uh, to to chat with me today and to share all of this with our listeners. I really appreciate it. And I speak on behalf of our whole community. I know we all really appreciate 
the work of, of music educators like you. And I'm so glad that we had the chance to do this. Me too. And thanks so much for inviting me. I thought, well, who am I to go on a podcast and people want to listen, who wants to listen to me talk about things. But I, I, what you just said, like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of many. It's not about me. There are just so many people out there doing what we're doing and doing it just as good and probably better. And um, I'm just really appreciative for you to give me a space to talk about some things that are passionate to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast. Give us a rating and a review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. Our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room.